You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at The Washington Post. While we're all waiting on Special Counsel Jack Smith's January 6th grand jury to render its decision on an indictment of a, a former President Trump, let's talk about some good news out of Washington great economic data. Joining me now, Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. Jeff, welcome back to First Look. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me, John. So figures released yesterday show the economy growing at a fairly robust 2.4% in the second quarter. What's fueling these strong numbers? Yeah, so that's like what the annualized rate would be. It would be if you know you took what we grew in the last quarter and stretched it out over the year, it would be 2.4%, which is you know not the rapid meteoric growth we saw in 2021 or even 2022, but a really good number and uh, comes on the heels of a lot of people screaming, running around, saying that we were uh, headed for a recession imminently. So huge relief for the White House. The numbers really powered by uh, the American consumer is still very strong. Um, we saw. Um, you know, a slight moderation in consumer spending, but at the same time, um, an, an increase in uh, manufacturing investment, really powered by um, the federal investments we've seen approved by the Biden administration, the CHIPS Act, Infrastructure Bill, and uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And that's helping um, power the American economy um, through, through this year. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Morgan Stanley say earlier this week, um, hey, recession is, isn't in the cards, right? So, yep. mm -hmm. right. So coming on the heels of that, is this better than expected economic data? The reason Fed Chairman J uh, Jay Powell said on Wednesday he's no longer forecasting a recession. Uh, yeah, the, the um, overall trajectory has just been much stronger than economists were anticipating even just a few weeks ago. Um, we've gotten a downgrade in the number of economists who think that a recession is um, likely this year. Um, there were um, people having fun uh, dunking on a lot of the tweets that were sent over the course of last year saying, um, I think there was one, I won't mention the, the economist or the outlet that was saying 100% chance of recession this year. Um, basically, uh, that has been revised down in every forecast. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't get one before the election um, or next year. Um, there's still a lot of headwinds in this economy, and particularly uh, lots of indices of inflation that the Fed is looking very closely at have not come down as far as they want. And that means that to reduce inflation, the Federal Reserve is going to continue um, to at least not cut interest rates, uh, maybe raise them a couple more times. And we you know, haven't necessarily seen the full impact of the, of the rate hikes um, that the Fed has already implemented. And so you know, maybe it will take time for the impact of, of sort of curbing the amount of money circulating in the economy to result in a recession. Obviously, that's an outcome no one wants to see. As is always your way, Jeff, in your answers, you, <laughs> you kind of answer questions I'm about to ask you, but I'm going to ask uh, them I apologize. Anyway. You can ignore it. <laughs> ask them anyway. No, that's a sign of a great reporter. So also on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve announced that they ra they're raising the interest rates another quarter point to their highest level in 22 years. Amplifying on what you said before, is this a sign that the Fed's strategy to tame inflation is working or not working as well? 
So it's an unfortunately annoyingly complicated question. And I wish economists could just like get in a room and be like, hey guys, let's just all agree that this is the truth instead of having diverging interpretations that you have to parse through. Um, but it's very clear that inflation has come down quite substantially from 9% last year to 3% annualized on the most recent report. And that is unequivocally great news um, for the American people, for the administration, um, and for the Fed. But the, the challenge here is that when you strip out some of the more volatile measures of inflation, things like gas prices, um, the Fed has an index that they call you know, co the core rate of inflation. And that is sort of like the durable, sticky part of price hikes. And that is still pretty high. It's still in you know, mid fours, ordering on five, and hasn't come down that much. And so if you look at the overall headline inflation number, you say, wow, this is great. Like we've cut inflation from nine to 3%. And unemployment is still incredibly low. Like, let's get the mission accomplished banners and like start the victory parade. But what the Fed is looking at is saying, hey, like this this less volatile, the more perhaps accurate, some would say, reading of inflation is still really high. And so maybe we need sort of to crush that more. And and the fear is that 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 attempt to crush it will go too far and lead the unemployment rate to spike. And so that's the sort of the balance that the Fed is wrestling with and the administration will be wrestling with. So you've been doing a lot of reporting this week on the economy and finding that a, a funny thing happened on the way to Republicans being able to slam Democrats uh, on the economy in, in next fall, the 2024 uh, presidential election. What have you learned? Well, you know, for the last two years, uh, it's been remarkably easy to be a Republican political consultant. Like these guys get paid six, seven figures to like come up with the main attack on Biden. And it's just been so obvious for Republicans just to say, people are really upset, really annoyed about inflation. You should just talk about that. And I wanna be very careful about what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that Republicans are abandoning or getting beyond that attack, but what we can report is that there are early conversations among Republican policymakers about, hey, if inflation stays at 3%, this is not the home run slam dunk issue, um, to mix my sports metaphors, that we have have been saying it is, and it has been for the Biden administration, for the Republican Party for this long. You know, People are so upset about inflation, but the Republican parties might need to figure out another message. And so those early conversations are, are beginning. And if inflation stays this low, I think Republicans are gonna have to find something else to talk about. Maybe you know the, the Trump indictments don't seem like a great answer either, and abortion certainly doesn't as well. So I don't know where their message is going to go, but but inflation might not be the one thing that they can make one, two, and three anymore. I, I think it's safe to assume that maybe their fallback position is Hunter Biden, but that's not your bailiwick. We'll talk about um, uh, something else. You alluded to it earlier uh, in our conversation, and that is you know some of the headwinds. So despite all the good economic news we've been hearing this week and this year, you know, what are the potential economic dangers out there facing the country and particularly the Biden administration heading into a presidential election? Well, so we have another funding fight over the federal government. So we could have a government shutdown, which could be not great. Um, we're seeing, um, you know, uh, some signs of tightening, credit tightening. Um, we had a regional bank crisis that was set off in part by the interest rate hikes the Fed was doing. You know, that seems to be mostly contained right now to, you know, the, the small and regional banks, but 
there's still fears and reasonable ones that that could metastasize. The war in Ukraine obviously um, continues. The global economy suffered, has suffered tremendously the impact on grain, um, other food, agricultural exports. If the global economy continues to, to suffer, it could really impact the U.S. And then I made this point a little bit earlier, but I think it's worth emphasizing that you know the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes, they take time and in prior um, cycles, we've had, you know, from 2004 to 2006, the Fed raised interest rates by much less than they're doing right now. And what happened after that, as we all remember, is the great financial crisis of 2008, 2007. And so, um, you know, we might not be out of the woods yet. I, I think, you know, that's the difficult position for the Biden administration in the sense that they have all this great economic news. It makes sense that they want to celebrate it. But I think if they get to, um, and, and they'll tell you this if you ask them, but they're, they're cautious of being too um, celebratory because they know that this could fall apart. Right. I mean, that's the thing. If you take credit for, for great economic news, then you're going to have to um, be there when folks blame you for when things go south. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter for The Washington Post, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. My pleasure, John. Thanks so much for having me on. Sure thing. We'll keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and Ramesh Panuru. Ramesh, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Nice Thanks. to be here. So uh, the nation is on the precipice of an historic moment, the possible indictment of former President Donald Trump um, who tried to remain in power by trying to overturn the elections of, of the 2020, uh, the results of the 2020 election. Um, just your thoughts on this moment that we're about to go through. Jennifer, you first. Well, it really is an extraordinary moment when you think about it. He's been indicted twice, but not for the singular crime against our democracy, which was his attempt to overthrow the valid election results in 2020. And many of us thought that we weren't going to get there because it didn't seem that the Justice Department was moving expeditiously. But as soon as Jack Smith was appointed, and mind you, the reason he was appointed was because Donald Trump decided to run for president and thought running for president would help him. In fact, it brought on this bulldog of a prosecutor who is now on the verge of indicting him for very serious felonies that really go to the heart of our democracy. So I think one question has been answered, which is, do we have the temerity to pursue the facts and the law, as uh, the attorney general put it? The next question is, what are the Republicans going to do about it? Do they really stick with this guy? And if they do, what about the country at large? Do we have the wherewithal to reject someone who is so abjectly unfit for the presidency? Ramesh, your thoughts? Well, I think that the country has moved with kind of stunning rapidity to a, a kind of um, blaseness about um, indictments of a former president where um, it, it seems to be um, with Trump, it's becoming um, a little bit routine and it's hard uh, for people to distinguish between legal developments that are truly important uh, and those that are less so. Um, 
As for the question of whether Republicans are willing to move on, looking at the polling right now, uh, it doesn't look as though that is the case. It doesn't look as though any of the indictments, with the exception of the Alvin Bragg one uh, for the hush money um, cover up, uh, have had any effect. And that, of course, had the effect of boosting Trump in the Republican primaries. But all of these things are, I think, taking a toll on Trump in the with the general electorate, the general electorate that has never been particularly positive toward him um, and was on, only really back, back of the Electoral College in 2016 against a very unpopular opponent and has otherwise found pretty much every occasion it could to reject him. To get to the political aspects of all this a little bit later in the conversation, but one more thing: What are your thoughts on on the stunning, superseding indictment dropped yesterday by Jack Smith in the classified documents case? Ramesh, you first. So that's an example of of what I was talking about, in that we were all sort of expecting an indictment, but we weren't expecting that indictment, um, that superseding indictment. Um, you know, as uh, as is the case of all of these things, you will want to see more. We'll want to see more evidence um, before we reach conclusions. But on its face, they're serious charges. Jennifer? Yeah, it, they're serious charges for a number of reasons. One, it is such a tell, if you will, that he tried to erase the videotapes. When you talk about consciousness of guilt, attempting to destroy evidence that may implica implicate you um, is really in the pr prosecutor's um, go-to uh, mechanisms for uh, obtaining a conviction. And I think the other reason why it's so compelling is that there's now another defendant, um, someone who apparently has been represented by somebody who Trump has been paid for, um, who wasn't able to work out a place and now himself has been indicted. And the question is whether that witness, um, who was um, sort of in charge of the maintenance of the uh, facility, um, whether he flips. And remember, in the allegations of the superseding indictment, we know that he talked directly to Trump. So he has powerful evidence if he chooses to provide it. Um, and he himself was caught just bald in bald-faced lies um, with the investigators, according to the indictment. So we not only have um, evidence of Trump's guilt, we also have a new witness. And to top it all off, we have this unseemly spectacle that he involves these really low-level employees who are trying to do their job, and yet he has pulled them into this whim of criminality. And you wonder if a jury looking at that is going to find that all quite distasteful. Mm. Jonathan, yeah. could, I, could I jump in on one more? Wait. One more. Here's the, that, um, you know, we saw in the Mueller report act behavior that I think pretty clearly would have been obstruction of justice, but there was a question about whether you could charge a sitting president. So we had this sort of willingness to obstruct now you've got an ex-president who seems to think that he has some of the powers of the president still and has not accepted that he's not the president. So I guess it's it's not you know, assuming these allegations are correct, it's not surprising that he would go through the same pattern of behavior. Right. Pa pattern of behavior. But meanwhile, Jennifer, the Biden administration has to contend with the legal woes of the president's son, Hunter, whose plea deal 
wasn't accepted by the judge. What was the issue, and does it lend credence to Republican arguments that the Justice Department gave the president's son special treatment? It really doesn't. There were two issues. One, the judge very smartly figured out there was no, if you will, meeting of the minds. The prosecutors seemed to think that they were making a deal only on this discrete set of charges. Um, but we're continuing an investigation into whether he violated the Foreign uh, Registration, Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, which is a complicated law that they find terribly difficult to get um, convictions on these days, but nevertheless um, requires you to register if you're acting on behalf of a foreign government. The other issue was, frankly, a constitutional issue where the parties were asking or the prosecution was asking the judge to be the one to determine whether he had met the terms of the deal and therefore could vacate the um, conviction a year later. And the reason they were doing this is they have some fear that if another administration, say the Trump administration, were to come back, they would kind of um, recapture him um, and, um, in essence, um, re-prosecute him. That's a problem that um, the Justice Department really can't fob off on the judge. Um, she's right. This is a job for the prosecutor to determine whether the conditions have been met and the case can be vacated. All of this is to said um, that these are technical issues that don't have to go really to the severity of the crime or the severity of the punishment. And I strongly suspect that in the next couple of weeks, the Justice Department and his lawyers are going to scramble around and put this all back together again. I have to say that the only person in this entire episode who was doing her job was the judge. Um, neither one of the attorneys, frankly, were all that prepared. And obviously, there was a great deal of confusion, which, thanks to the judge, we figured out before um, the deal was signed. And Ramesh, so was this a victory for justice or a temporary win for Republicans when it, who want to keep uh, making the president's son an issue? And how can they do that? when their de facto standard bearer is mired in even deeper legal trouble. So uh, a couple of uh, issues there that are that are sort of knotted together. First, I, I wouldn't obsess too much with the, the short-term political implications because we will have further legal developments on this front as, uh, as Jennifer uh, pointed out, and people are not going to remember um, what happened in late July of 2023 um, compared to what the ultimate resolution of this case is in November of 2024. The, um, the, 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 the way that the issue is playing, I think, for Republicans is it is a way of, um, of deflecting uh, some of the criticisms that are made of Donald Trump um, by saying, you know, basically any any attempt to hold Trump accountable legally, um, instead of taking it on on the merits and saying, well, he actually is blameless, um, since that is a very hard case to make, people want to instead make the case that, you know, there's a two-tiered system of justice, it's unfair, it's selective prosecution, um, and then you can sort of fly spec the um, Justice Department's decisions. Now, in the case of Hunter Biden, I think, you know, the, the, the answer to that, you know, a full evaluation of that charge, I think, is going to have to wait until we see the resolution. 
All right, let's get into the politics um, of the Republican presidential uh, field. Jennifer, at a column this week, you laid out a nightmare scenario for Republicans next year. What is it? Well, there is considerable doubt that whatever trials Trump will be facing will be resolved in their entirety, or even at the trial level stage, put aside all of the appeals, um, before the Republicans have their convention. Their convention will be in July of next year. Let's say for sake of the sake of argument, maybe the Alvin Bragg case is complete. The documents case in Mar-a-Lago is not going to begin at the very earliest in May, and there's a good chance that that may be postponed. So let's say for the sake of argument, that doesn't start till late June. That could be going on while the convention is still being heard um, and the convention is still uh, in session. Meanwhile, the January 6th trial may or may not have been underway. So you have a convention of diehard Trump supporters meeting in uh, their convention. There's no finite um, decision, um, a guilty verdict in a case of great merit, either the Mar-a-Lago case or the January 6th case. So they say, oh, well, this will all get resolved or it's all a plot or it'll all come out in the wash. And they go ahead and they nominate him. Then come August, September, October, maybe there's a conviction in one or more of those cases. The Republican Party has just lined up, thank you very much, um, behind a criminal, um, a convicted criminal um, in that scenario. And so what do they do? And this is part of, I think, a little bit of what Ramesh was getting at, which is there's this air of um, really lack of reality, lack of wrestling with the facts as they are. They've been in denial so long. What are they really going to do? Do they take that risk? Talk about rolling the dice. They're going to roll the dice that he's not convicted between the convention and the election, in which case I have to think that um, even as polarized as we are, there'll be a lot of Republicans who, frankly, um, they may not vote for Joe Biden, but they also may not show up at the polls to vote for someone who's been convicted of serious felonies. So that's the scenario. And the Republicans have only themselves to blame. They've never been able to throw him overboard. They refuse to uh, impeach him either time. They refuse to reject him down the road. They're still making excuses for him. And worst of all, his opponents are still making excuses for him. So um, they have a potential train wreck ahead of them where they are all lined up behind someone who turns out to be a convicted felon. And yet, Ramesh, I mean, rolling the dice, it doesn't seem like the party faithful view it that way. Is there any likelihood that Republicans will have buyer's remorse if Trump is the nominee? Well, I think that partly this is a reflection of what looks like a flawed strategy on the part of Trump's primary opponents, and particularly of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, um, who has famously been rebooting his campaign over the last two weeks. But the, but the question I think that is still unresolved is, is the campaign of Ron DeSantis still going to be focused on winning over two overlapping groups of voters, those who describe themselves as very conservative and those who have been strongly behind Donald Trump? That's not the only kind of voter there is in the Republican primary. There are the voters who describe themselves as somewhat conservative, who have typically been the majority makers in Republican primaries. And there are the voters who are not never Trump voters, but are not enthusiastic about Trump. 
so far, those voters have gotten a little bit of the cold shoulder from Ron DeSantis. And uh, that appears right now to be a losing strategy. uh, And but it's not clear that the governor believes that. Well, more on that on that point, Jennifer, this new state polling that has bad news for for Governor DeSantis this week. He's still in second place behind Donald Trump in national polls, but in key early voting states, Iowa and South Carolina, he's in a statistical tie for second place. Uh, He's in second place to Senator Tim Scott in Iowa and second place, well, a statistical tie for second place in Iowa with, with Senator Scott and a statistical tie for second place in South Carolina with that state's former governor and the former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley. Can he still claim, can DeSantis still claim to be uh, the Trump alternative to Republican primary voters? And when it comes to second place, does this mean that Republican primary voters don't want Trump light? They want something different. Jennifer, you first. Well, it's an interesting dilemma. Um, On one hand, he continues to hold about 20% or so of the electorate, whether you look at the state polls or the national polls. So he's using up, if you will, a chunk of the voters that Ramesh described who don't really want to vote for Trump. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to be going uh, and repairing his problems. He seems to be now stuck below an even lower ceiling. So he's kind of now in the way. If there were a candidate who might catch fire, like a Tim Scott, um, he can't really get to those voters. He can't consolidate those voters because Ron DeSantis is sitting there using up about 20% of the electorate. So Something's got to give here. Um, either, you know, DeSantis really continues to plummet, and he's had a lot of problems. He's had to cancel um, many of the fundraisers in Long Island. He's had to show up at these very sparsely attended events. He is not really turning things around. And of course, he just fired a third of his staff. Um, so he could frankly, evaporate entirely. He might not make it to January, or he might bomb out in the first primary or so. And then it'll be an opportunity for other people to consolidate the not Trump vote um, and to see whether there's really an alternative. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, if the Republican Party were made up of Ramesh Panrus, we'd all be a lot better. But I fear that Ramesh is in the distinct minority. The overwhelming majority of the party want Trump. Um, they have a positive opinion of him. He's leading in all the polls, not by a plurality, but by a majority. Right. And and Ramesh, in the less than, I think, minute that we have left, what what do you think? Well, I think that uh, the polling of uh, several months ago where DeSantis was more competitive um, tells us that at least some of those voters supporting Trump have been open to supporting somebody else. Uh, And so it is not written in stone that Trump has to continue to command that majority, Um, but he clearly does have it right now. Uh, And, you know, I think, you know, whether or not what yeah it is certainly true i wouldn't like him to be the nominee again but he is that is the way to bet right now that he will be all right well we have plenty of weeks to to talk about <laughs> to see whether or not that prediction is true ramesh panuru jennifer rubin as always thank you both for coming to first look have a great weekend you thank too. you you too thanks for listening 
To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.